Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. I want to take a deeper look at what the potential on-the-ground implications are, regardless of who wins this election. It is my honor to bring in Jonathan Siegel, founder and CEO of The One Groom and STK Restaurants. Um, this is You can find them uh, in the meatpacking district and uh, you know across the country. Uh, Jonathan, are you expecting to see any kind of meaningful change, either in your customers or the amount of money people are w- willing to spend um, in your restaurants or, or other... Well, uh, good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, I certainly think there's been a change up until now. With the uh, election, uh, people tend to be a little bit more cautious about going out and spending money. And I think, <clears throat> I think to be honest, people are going to wait and see what happens. Wait, wait, hold the, on a sec. Can you back up? Because yeah. a lot of people have said this. A lot of companies have said that people have been more cautious. Really? Yes. That people don't go out to eat because of the election? I think people. It becomes a it becomes a mainstream event that people are focused on amongst themselves, and they tend to become more isolated and they're more focused on what's going on. And whenever any major event happens, whether it's a sport event and uh, the Olympics, uh, World Series, anything that's major that really uh, embraces the uh, uh, a great many people. It has an impact on people's expenditure because they also become aware of the implications of the results. And that's also part of what affects their decision to spend money. Do they think the economy is going to boom? Do they think it's not going to boom? Do they need to save more money? Is, look what's happened this morning. Obviously, this morning, the market thinks that Clinton's going to win and the, and the market's up 257 points. So there's absolutely a correlation between uh, economics and expenditure and investment and, and, and obviously uh, uh, election results. You know, I can tell by your accent that you come from the heartland of America. <laughs> Straight in the center. How? Yeah. How? How did you? Did you call the Brexit? I mean, you know, so I, people have connected I those. I completely got the Brexit wrong. Uh, I thought that we would stay. Um, and what is unbelievably interesting now that seems to have been washed over is what occurred last Friday in London, where the part, the High Court ruled that there has to be an act of Parliament in order to exit to enforce Article 40. You think that we washed over that? We're Bloomberg. We okay. talked extensively so, about so that. So this is an unbelievable <laughs> constitutional... Uh, uh, Will that affect your business? Would that affect your... Because I note, for example, you've got projects in Milan. Yes. You've got business in London, Toronto. Orlando, Miami, Chicago. I mean, I'm, I want you to tell people about some of these places. So let's just talk yeah. about that for a minute because this is a Please. great question. You know, in the le- again, in the lead up to the Brexit, our business was impacted. Following the Brexit, our business returned to where it was. It's uncertainty that creates cautiousness. Once that uncertainty is gone, it doesn't necessarily have to have gone the way you wanted it to go. But once that uncertainty is past us, people become a little bit more relaxed. So if you look at our businesses, uh, particularly in the United Kingdom, uh, where we operate seven facilities, seven venues in, in two facilities, in the lead up to Brexit, we were impacted. And post-Brexit, business to kind of return. And in fact, it's up on where it was uh, this time last year. But Rest- are you, wait, we just got to make sure. Food, restaurant, hospital. Hospitality. 
right? I yeah. mean, just give an example so mm. people understand. So what... so uh, we have a number of venues in England. We operate uh, uh, as part of our business. We go into hotels and run their entire food and beverage. Uh, so we do that in the Mead Hotel in London. We also have an STK restaurant. We also have a rooftop bar. And then we have a facility in the Hippodrome Casino. So really, in our London uh, is a snapshot of what we do globally as a company. And it's also trading across the board of people that are uh, at all different levels of disposable income. We are sitting with someone who lives much better than I do, I am sure, uh, with all of the, the food and the entertainment and the beautiful hotels uh, that you can go visit. One thing I am wondering, once the uh, uncertainty settles, there are some policies that could make a big difference. Another word for one in particular is minimum wage. Do you think that if a minimum wage was lifted in the U.S. that that would affect your business at all? So it definitely affects our business. And and part of the problem that's driving this minimum wage issue is a very complex arena. Part of the problem, uh, first you have to split out the, the, the beneficiaries of it. People that earn money in fast casual or in fast food restaurants are not benefits of, of the tip structure. So minimum wage is a really important asset for them. Uh, the people that work in, in, in casual or in fine dining are benefit from the tip structure. So uh, you have situations where as you systematically increase minimum wage, you're still you're paying your waste wait staff more, and whilst twenty percent tipping still exists, they're still getting the twenty percent tipping. Do you think that the tipping uh, structure should go away? Well, tipping needs to change. One of the ways it either needs to change, or the laws that impact it need to change. The biggest problem with the tipping system, which is I don't understand why the authorities haven't really worked out, because it doesn't take a brain surgeon to work it out. The rules require that the only people that can benefit from the tips are the people that actually touch the consumer. So the, 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 uh, the servers, uh, the bar staff, etc. But if you work in the kitchen, or if you work in the back of house, or if you work uh, any other areas where you don't impact the guest, you don't actually get to share in the tip pool. Now, the truth is you can't sit in a restaurant and have a meal unless there's a kitchen cook in it. But because we can't share the tips around amongst everybody, you have this terrible imbalance. So certainly at the fine dining and the casual dining arena, one of the areas to fix the, the split or the, or the differential between the back of house and front of house is just enable everybody down for managers to share in the tip pool. That one little fix will change that whole category of, of income. And then you can really start to focus on people that are not necessarily in a tip pool in the, in the, in the fast food restaurant where obviously people are entitled and should, should earn a living wage. The cost of doing business. Maybe speak a little bit about that, whether it's the input costs or the real estate costs or just the cost and the risk of going bust because the restaurant industry, as I heard, well, is not a sure thing. No, no. Well, listen, the, the restaurant industry is in recession at the moment. There's no question or doubt about that. And it's it's based on all the, it's we're, we're in the perfect storm. We have rising rents. You know, every year our rents go up 3 5%. The landlords don't not put them up. Uh, we have increased food costs. Uh, we now have increased labor costs. Uh, we have uncertainty. We have increased competition. We have competition from disruptors. You know, you have situations with the Seamless and the Internet Food Delivery Service that impact what's going on in the actual restaurant. Sure, there are those that will argue to say, well, you're still getting, you're selling a meal if you sell it through Seamless or if you sell it in store. But the truth is you're not getting the liquor sales that help to add to the profitability of the company, of the, of the business. And therefore, as a result, we're in a perfect storm. We're in a perfect storm of problems. Uh, and, the, and the authorities need to wake up to this because if you start to to marginalize the restaurant industry that has overwhelming implications. And these are mostly self-inflicted. Uh, yes and no. The r r rents certainly are not. Food costs are certainly not. Um, 
I think you know the the the, regis- the 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 legislation that we work under and the and all the enforcement rules are crazy. I mean, if you sit and, and understand, here's a crazy enforcement law. How about this? I'm going to give you five seconds. Okay, if you don't seat your patios the way they're supposed to be seated, but move them to put two fours together, you're breaking the law. Jonathan Siegel, thank you very much. Founder, chief executive of the One Group and STK Restaurants. This is Bloomberg. All right, 13 hours, 7 minutes, and 56 seconds until the first polls open in but the U.S. But who's counting? Clearly. Three towns in New Hampshire are set to vote at midnight. So, Lisa Bromitz, I think you'll be staying up quite a late night. And I think that Mark Niquette also better get some sleep in the afternoon because he'll be spending the night watching. He's our politics and national government reporter. Normally he joins us from Columbus, Ohio, but he joins us here in our studios in our global headquarters in New York. Thank you very much for being here, Mark. Thank you. Good to be here. So uh, what are we supposed to take? What What's going to happen in the next 13 hours that is going to matter to the outcome of the election? Well, we're going to see sort of the final push by the campaigns. We have Hillary Clinton with rallies all the way up to midnight. Uh, Her last rally is in Raleigh, North Carolina at midnight. Uh, Donald Trump will be doing the same. And this is sort of the last push to get, you know, the final late, late, late deciders, the people who are actually going to the polls tomorrow who haven't already early voted, you know, maybe sway just the the last few folks that, that could make a difference in some of these key battleground states that could decide the election. So you wrote a story basically uh, saying that even though James Comey, the FBI director, came out and said that he wasn't going to charge any uh, charge Hillary Clinton with any crime and that the new review of emails did not change the FBI's deliberations. This clears a cloud, but you're saying the damage is done. Yeah, on a couple of levels. I mean, one, you've had millions of people casting early votes at, at a time this cloud was sort of hanging over our head. And to the extent that it affected votes, you know, there's no way to change those, of course. But I think fundamentally, it, it really did change, you know, the, the trajectory of the race. You know, think about before the first um, FBI letter came out from Director Comey, um, I was actually was aboard the the Clinton campaign plane. You know when that news broke, we were in midair, and they were doing a press conference on the plane, talking about how we can't be complacent. You know, complacency is our enemy because the polls at that time looked like she was headed toward victory and maybe a decisive victory. And that you know letter just sort of reset the race, where it it reinforced you know, questions that people might have had about her, her use of emails. It gave Donald Trump, you know, something to, to talk about on his campaign uh, rallies. And it also, you know, what we're seeing is maybe affected uh, independents or, you know, even Republican-leaning independents or um, um, suburban women who, you know, maybe weren't enamored of Trump but were, you know, unsure about Hillary Clinton. And this sort of made them pause about supporting her. So it made the race tighten, no question. Yeah, but why wouldn't they reverse that? I mean, if it had such a big effect in the other way, why wouldn't people say, all right, this, there's nothing to see here? Well, I think the people we're talking to say it will have some of that effect that, again, these sort of late, late deciders, you know, who may have had concerns about Clinton, maybe this removes that cloud and they go ahead and vote for her. But I think the feeling was the race was already tightening with Republicans coming home, is what they say. You know, if you're a Republican and maybe you're not sure about Donald Trump, but you're not sure about her either, you still vote Republican. So this could help on the margins with, you know, a really, really close race. But, you know, the feeling is a lot of it's already baked in. If you cared about this issue or didn't care about this issue, you know, this isn't going to change your opinion. Mark Niquette, the use of polling data and projections. Uh, Major news organizations do not call elections until after the polls 
have closed. But using projections during the election day is something that apparently is going to happen. There's a, a, something called VoteCaster, and they're going to team up with Slate and Vice, I believe, and they're going to be giving information out about the polling while the election is still uh, taking place. Right. And, and traditionally, we've also had exit polling. This is somewhat similar to that, where, you know, they take a slice of the electorate coming off the, you know, from, from voting and, and get a sense of how the vote's going to break down. Uh, and it is always a little bit, you know, dicey from the standpoint of people are still voting. And like you say, there's sort of a tradition. Right. It might where... discourage people. It might discourage people from actually going to the polls if they think that their vote doesn't matter because of these early uh, estimates, for example. Right. And you got people on the West Coast voting after, you know, the race has been called or some states have already come in. And, you know, that's always been a a sort of a tension in terms of, you know, we want to get the information as quickly as we can and we want to see what the trends are. But, you know, ultimately, all that matters is what's the final vote count when, you know, when all the ballots are counted. So since I want to get a sense of who's winning and I want the information now, what are the early (laughs) polls saying? Well, the, the polls suggest that the race has stabilized, that you know, Hillary Clinton still has a structural advantage. What about the uh, actual early voting? Oh, the early voting? Again, I think the, the early voting suggests that, you know, Clinton had an advantage there, but she had to have an advantage. I mean, the way that traditionally works is Republicans are better at Election Day turnout. You know, the, uh, even if a you know, Republican like Mitt Romney in 2012 loses the election, he'll often win in terms of the, the vote that actually comes out on Election Day. So the idea for Democrats has been, and, and certainly the last three cycles, bank your votes early. Get your supporters to cast their ballots early and sort of build up a lead that can't be overcome on election day. And that's what you're seeing in states like Nevada, where the Clinton campaign, for example, uh, estimates Donald Trump would have to get 10 percent uh, of all of the or 10 percentage points of all the election day votes to overcome the lead that Clinton has built with early voting. Mark Niquette, thank you so much for joining where's us. Hillary, in I just studio. want to ask, where's, Hill, where's Hillary Clinton going to vote? You know, that's a good question. I'm, I'm, I haven't seen any uh, announcement. I'm assuming it's New York, yeah. but we'll, we'll see. And also Donald Trump, obviously, in, right. in New York. New Yorkers. Mark Niquette, Bloomberg Politics reporter. Thank you so much for joining us. Mark Niquette has a full uh, party ready to go just to celebrate the end of the election season. He cannot wait. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I am here with Pim Fox. This is Bloomberg. You know who we call on when we want to know everything about the retail industry? Our own Poonam Goyal, senior U.S. retail analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Great to have you with us, Poonam. Tell us about the big department stores and their upcoming all-important holiday selling season. So the department stores have been struggling, as you know, at least to most of them or many of them, and I don't think they'll be any different this holiday season. Um, They're all slated to report earnings this week, beginning Thursday with Macy's, Nordstrom, and Kohl's, and then um, we have JCPenney reporting on Friday. Now, what I can tell you here is that sales likely suffered for many of them um, in third quarter, and that's not a good sign heading into holidays because it shows the lack of customer interest in big box retailing and the lack of desire to go to a mall. That said, we think margins will likely hold up better because they are managing their inventory well. And from what I can see in the space, the promotional cadence has somewhat moderated. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't any more promotions, but they're being very strategic with them and they're more planned. Wait, wait, hold on one second. When you say that, you're talking about how much uh, discounts they're giving. 
That is right. So, you know, typically you've seen 60, 70% clearance racks in many of these retailers, and that's largely because of lots of inventory left over. So they're watching their inventory. They're keeping an eye on how much they're selling, and they're cutting back orders just to make sure that they don't get into that position they did last year where they had way too much, couldn't sell it, and had to discount it aggressively to make room for new merchandise. Right. Well, these are not all uh, the same either. I mean, Nordstrom usually caters to a higher-end uh, clientele, whereas Kohl's is more um, of sort of middle or, or, or lower uh, tier of shoppers, correct? I mean, there's not, it's, there, there is a split here. So which do, you, which do you expect to do better? So for third quarter, I think Nordstrom will do better, only because they have that one week of their anniversary sale moving into the third quarter. And even in general, you know, the, the problem that Nordstrom has right now is tourism. And just that the luxury consumer that's coming from abroad isn't hitting those key tourist areas, whether it's Miami, New York City, Los Angeles, or so forth. If that starts to come back, I think they'll do better. But when you look at the Macy's, the Coles, the Dillard's, the more mid-tier retailers that are essentially overstored. I mean, if you look at Macy's, they have uh, 800 stores. Coles has over 1,000. Too many stores. Uh, no real place of why I should come here. I mean, there's little differentiation. So consumers are just opting to go elsewhere. Poonam, TJX, Ross stores, Burlington stores, these are the uh, thrifty retailers. 40 to 60% off retail prices. Are they going to benefit? Absolutely. They've been benefiting for the last, I'd say, seven, eight years, and they continue to do so. And it's not so much about the discount. Well, the discount's great. It's that when you walk in there, you'll always find something new. So customers like that element of surprise. When I walk in, I grab it. If I don't get it, it may not be here. And that's really what's been helping these retailers. These retailers don't have an online presence. TJX is very small. So all the business that they're doing is in the store, and they're getting customers to come to that store. So we've heard a lot of excuses over the uh, quarters. We've heard about weather that was too warm. We've heard about weather that was too cold. We've heard recently about the election and how that's crimping people's expenditures. Uh, What do you expect to be the excuse this time around? And maybe weather again. Um, you know, it's, it's very important, as, as much as we'd like to call it an excuse, but apparel retailers need it to get cold in 4Q to sell sweaters and cold weather accessories. So as of right now, temperatures are, I'd say, you know, they have 70 degrees here last week. So they're not that cold where it would prompt you to get a coat or a sweater. But if they don't turn cold, we will have another excuse, and it will be weather. If temperatures do cool, though, I think they'll all be positioned for a very good fourth quarter because last year, November, was uh, just very bleak. Poonam, I don't think that the weather really affects anything in the cosmetic industry, or am I wrong? Maybe I'm wrong there. You know, that's the one industry that's on fire. Okay, I want you to tell me about Ulta Salon. I want you to tell me about the details, because there are all new ways that cosmetics are now being introduced into the marketplace, whether it is dry bars, whether it is all kinds of services combined with products. So I don't cover cosmetics closely outside of Sephora, which is in JCPenney, but I can tell you our hardlines analyst that does um, had just mentioned in our holiday preview that Ulta is on fire growing um, double digits for the last few years and will continue to do so. And that's largely because it kind of fits back into the experience trend. You know, you want to dress up because you want to go out. You want to have nice makeup. You want to have your hair done. And you want to have the right products to do so. So the whole shift that we're seeing from buying things to spending money on experiences, beauty just fits 
right into that. Well, they talk about things like salon services, including hair, brow, and skin bars, as well as prestige boutiques. And also the point is made that uh, their share of the wallet and the shopping frequency at an Ulta salon sets them apart uh, from their rivals. Yeah, I, I mean, speaking to Alta, I, I don't follow it once again as closely, yeah. but I can tell you that, you know, it's uh, cheaper, right, to go there. So it, it kind of fits into the discount, the value chain, and that's something that the customer is looking for right now. So the more expansion that they can have or the more breadth that they can have in the types of beauty services they offer should continue to help them. So what about currency? Does the dollar, are we going to hear anything about the dollar strengthening and the potential for that, especially as the Federal Reserve hikes, or is that sort of over? It's not over. It's still there. But given that we've seen uh, a lot of the surge already with the dollar strengthening in the past 12 to 18 months, I think the pressure is somewhat abate heading into 4Q and next year. That said, if the dollar materially strengthens again, it's it's definitely a headwind, at least for the retailers with international presence. Poonam, what is your most contrarian belief? Who do you think is going to outperform who everybody else has discounted or the other way around? You know, um, we don't give recommendations, but I can tell you that JCPenney, which has been a turnaround story for some time, has had mixed reviews on, you know, whether they'll fall at prey to the broader trends that we're seeing in the department store space, which is lack of traffic, lack of just interest in buying apparel. And I think they're doing interesting things at their stores, like adding appliances. They are also focusing in on their in-style boutiques, the center core, and differentiating themselves from the rest. So while still a department store, they're making a lot of headway uh, into uh, getting the consumer back into their doors. Poonam Goyal, thank you so much for joining us. Poonam Goyal, senior U.S. retail analyst, breaking down earnings from Macy's, Kohl's, Nordstrom, JCPenney. We're going to get them all uh, this week, and we will be keeping track of the, uh, frankly, somewhat beleaguered beleaguered retail industry that has really been uh, uh, bearing the brunt of the lack of wage uh, increase that is finally starting to tick up. So perhaps we'll see some better earnings there uh, coming from there. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm here with my co-host, Pim Fox. This is Bloomberg. take a look at what I think is probably the biggest casino uh, in the past three days, and that is gold. I mean, gold has been bouncing around. First, hedge funds were piling in, putting long bets on gold uh, to sort of offset the chance of a uh, Trump victory. Now, gold is falling the most in a month. I want to get some more insight on this. Uh, Mike McLon, commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, what's your take on all this? Well, I think today is a good example. It's with you know, the highest probability of events with a Trump election would be gold going up. So obviously we're seeing the opposite today with gold going down. Uh, you know, it seems un- unlikely it will happen. But the key thing to remember for gold, it's still up 20% on the year. And why? Global interest rates, negative interest rates. U.S. might be tightening. The dollar hasn't re- increased as much. So as far as an election relation, I think that's the highest probability in commodities that gold would go up. But, you know, knocking around today, I mean, the news was pretty significant. Look at the stock market. It's up, it's up the opposite of gold being down today. So it's kind of the inversion. Mike, are you, are you a popular guy now? Because, I mean, <laughs> boy, you were not popular at the beginning of the year. Anything to do with commodities, everyone wanted to stay about 150 feet away if we wanted to be in your neighborhood. That is very true. That's part of the reason I'm at Bloomberg is because I was at a firm for the last few years, and that commodity AUM just went straight down. Finally, they hit their stop, and I ended up in a better place. But I'm becoming more popular, I guess. And it's a discussion we had earlier. Be, you know, you look at gold 
a few years from now. And I, you know, we all hope gold would be down because everything's doing better. The commodity, the economy is doing better, and the Fed doesn't have to. You know, we don't have to. The stock market's doing better, but gold is still the the attractive hedge, and partly you see it in negative interest rates. Now we can move on to other commodities. For instance, like what's really would be a big problem, I think, if Trump were to be elected, is his anti-trade status. So you think of commodities that U.S. really exports corn, wheat, soybeans, that would be a problem there because that export would kind of hurt that export market. Well, but wouldn't it be the same for Clinton because she's sort of taken an anti-TPP uh, stance as well? I think so, but it's already kind of factored in. Any, any type of anti-trade for things we export will be bad, but Trump more so. Um, well, so. okay, so going back to gold, I mean, you said you know it's up 20% on the year. Regardless of who wins, do you think that there's a direction for gold that's uh, really independent of this latest bout of volatility. Yes, exactly. And um, it's up. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> it's it's it. up for now, but it's all commodities. And gold's just been one of the leaders. It just got a little expensive relative to other commodities. But it's also, look, look at the environment. Their interest rates are near negative. And what's the next step? If the, the central banks are successful in creating inflation, that's traditionally the best thing for gold. So, it's, so, so in other words, I, I didn't mean to say glad to hear it, um, <laughs> because I, I have one a bet one way so or another on gold. Um, no, I, it's more just uh, you know generally up is a positive, but in this case, it actually might be a negative with with respect to the global economy. Yeah. I mean, do you think that uh, that the bets on gold and the and the gains that gold has ex, have ex, has experienced really is uh, a vote of of lack of confidence in the economy. Yeah, exactly. Gold is generally the inversion of the U.S. dollar. It's it's the inversion of the stock market. Gold really stopped going up and started going down in 2014 when the stock market started making new highs. And, you know, and it's it's done the opposite this year. It's done well, even though the stock market's gone up. So it's still, it's the ultimate... Quintus, I guess you could say the uh, diversified asset. You know, the, the, the free, uh, the... the 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 clear asset that you can use to diversify your your other your other other asset other investments still is. I want to just go so. through a bunch of commodities. Give me the bull or bear case, and you know, give you five sure. seconds each because I want to get through a bunch yeah. of them. Silver, best performing asset so far this year, thirty one percent gain year to date. Silver bullish, S- bearish, bullish, bullish. Why? It's um, down 60% from the highs, and the supply and demand trends are very positive. All right. We did gold. That's up more than 20%. Tell me what's going on with things like palladium and platinum. I always hear that they're tied to the auto industry. Somewhat different. Palladium definitely much more tied to gasoline vehicles. Demand is still picking up, most notably from China. So still somewhat bullish. Platinum is a little different. It's more focused on diesel vehicles and what happened with Volkswagen is pressuring it. But although platinum is still $300 or so less than gold, historically it's very cheap. Tell me about soft commodities, things like corn, wheat. I know we got a big ethanol issue having to do with uh, corn, and we got a lot of, uh, well, we had a good harvest. Corn and wheat just made 10-year lows. Yeah. And because of that, demand is really picking up. So they've been down for quite a while. It's just how sustainable are these trends? Demand is quite strong, specifically in wheat, corn, soybeans. Soft commodities, if you want a specific soft commodity, you speak of sugar, and sugar's up. 60% 60% yeah. on the year. Coffee also. Coffee too, which we all have to drink. But the thing about sugar, it's a direct relationship to corn because of ethanol. So it might pull corn prices up. Anything that you want to tell us about the energy complex that we need to know? Natural gas, heating oil, gasoline? Overall, oil. glut. We still have a glut. 
range trading. It got a little expensive, a little bit, little bit overweight, above 50 when crude oil was 50 recently. But getting near 40, it might do the opposite. We're stuck in a range, still a glut. And at some point, that was going to change. But you talked about technology earlier, and that's a key thing that's impacting energy, conservation, more supply. And it's the opposite in things like silver, where technology is creating more demand and not increasing supply. I was going to get that for uh, uh, Lisa. I was going to get her as a gift. <laughs> well, Mike, <laughs> I was just going to ask, real quick, what is the one commodity that we're going to be talking about most next year? Good question. I still, th- I still think it's silver, partly because it's not really widely watched, and the supply demand, tr- the supply demand trends are very positive. Mike McLone, thank you so much for joining us. Mike McLone, commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence on all things commodities. We got a lot. We got a lot there, Pim. I like that. I like the uh, going down the round. list. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.